This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. With Mike Moffat, an economist and senior director of policy and innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Okay, so let's talk about... Um, about the, uh, we've been talking all morning about this massive population boom that we've experienced over the past three months. Uh, 430,000 Canadian, new, new people have come to Canada. But I've been talking about the equation imbalance, that for all these people that we bring in, we have to also ask ourselves, have we set them up for success? Do they have a place to live? Do we have the infrastructure to support them? Can they access healthcare? So let's look at this from the, the, the housing front. As we bring in all of these people, are my... Uh, are my fears uh, real or uh, are they misplaced? No, I, I think you're asking exactly the, the right question. And, you know, had we done this in kind of a logical way, we would have built up our housing stock, our, our transit, our, our healthcare system, and then increased our, our population. But in, instead, we're doing things the other way around where uh, we're seeing, you know, big growth in international students, big growth in temporary foreign workers without putting all the necessary infrastructure in place. And, and now we find ourselves uh, scrambling. And I, I do think it's a, a big, big problem. I, uh, I saw a video online by Sean Fraser, the uh, uh, housing minister, federal housing minister. And, uh, and he was talking about the victory homes that were built after the Second World War and how we as a nation marshaled our resources and in a short period of time were able to build low-cost, uh, well-built um, homes, single-family homes, across this country for our returning veterans. And, and he expressed that with new technology, we could do something very, very similar uh, in, in, in short order. Now, it sounds ambitious. And given this uh, government's track record of really uh, uh, <laughs> over-promising and under-delivering on a lot of files, what are your thoughts on that plan? Yeah, well, I, I certainly am a big supporter of the uh, reintroducing the catalog of designs, uh, which the, the federal government had back in the 1940s. Now, the designs themselves would have to be quite a bit different to, to meet uh, today's needs. But I think that's, that's a fantastic uh, idea. We need to do more than that, though. And a lot of what we need to do on housing is get out of our own way. And that's all three orders of government that, you know, one of the big expenses uh, to building housing is the approvals process that it's just it's drawn out. It takes years, and you know time time is money. So I, I do think what the uh, what the federal government is doing on that file is helpful. But we should understand that a lot of the the length of time building homes isn't because of the uh, the trade uh, the skilled tradespeople on the site. It's all of the things that happened years before. So, so if we decided today that we want to get out of our own way, how long until a housing boom that could start taking care of, uh, of the, these new Canadians that are arriving? Well, I, I certainly think we could uh, increase our numbers. Now, we're not going to double them or triple them overnight like the, uh, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation says that, that we need to. But I really think we can uh, substantially increase the housing stock using those new technologies that uh, Minister Fraser mentioned. So, you know, we've got a lot of uh, really innovative companies across Canada uh, doing things like panelization. So, you know, building parts of the home offsite and then trucking it in. Uh, you know, if we can scale up those companies, if we can incorporate those technologies into these designs, we can really scale things up without having to you know, massively scale up our number of skilled trades workers, uh, which is one of our other big bottlenecks that uh, we're not going to be able to double the amount of housing by doubling the number of electricians and roofers and plumbers. We just don't have the skilled labor for that. 
I'm talking with Mike Moffat, economist and senior director of policy and innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute. We're talking housing and everything wrong with it in this country. Uh, at the beginning of this show, Mike, we were talking about uh, foreign students coming to Canada and not having a place to live. Now, I remember when I went to university, I went to university in the United States and my very first year, it was mandated that I live on campus. Is that not a guarantee for students, even foreign students who come to Canada? I, I would be, I'm surprised to learn that students come to Canada and, and they have no place to land. They have no place to live. Is, is that, is that a reality that I'm, is just foreign to me? Yeah, it, it, it is. And I, uh, I, you know, I had a similar experience. Uh, I went to University of Rochester in uh, Rochester, New York, and, you know, it's a similar setup there. But we have to understand what, what's happening in Ontario. It's largely the colleges uh, that are expanding their international student population. And community colleges historically haven't built housing uh, because historically they've been uh, educating people who already live in the community, hence the name. So that's the, the big disconnect where you have colleges increasing their enrollment, you know, sometimes by 10 or 20,000 people over the last uh, five years uh, in not building a, a single uh, residence room. So it really is causing all kinds of housing tensions uh, in, in communities with these colleges. And it's absolutely setting up the, uh, the students for failure. And they are the biggest victims in this, that uh, a, a student comes in, often has their, their, their family paying their life savings in order to come to Canada just to find out that there's, there's nowhere for them to live. But th this seems highly irresponsible for these, uh, these, these organizations of higher education that they know, they know full well that these people are coming in. They know that there's very low supply in their community. They're bringing these people in, they're taking their money, and they're not doing anything to set them up for success, but they are taking their money. That's a, that to me, that to me feels wildly unfair. It, it is absolutely unfair. It's a, it's a tragic situation and it is completely irresponsible uh, of the colleges. And, you know, we, we have a lot of sort of finger pointing here that the, the colleges will say that, well, well, look, you know, we, we need the money. You know, there's been there's been cutbacks and, and, and tuition freezes and the provincial government allows us to do this. So we'll do it. And then the province says, well, look, if this was really a problem, the federal government could deal with it because the federal government has to issue uh, international student visas to all the incoming students. So if there's a problem, you know, it's, it, it should be the federal government's responsibility. So it's a classic Canadian problem of different orders of government and different sectors like the higher ed sector all pointing fingers at each other, but nobody's actually trying to solve the problem. Mike Moffat, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. We hope you have a great day and look forward to talking to you again soon. Talk soon. Take care. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. April Kademi, engineer, scientist, and image analysis in the medicine lab at TMU. April, thank you so much for being here. What does it mean for Toronto to become an AI hub? Uh, good morning, Ben. Thank you very much for... Um, having me here, uh, so what does it mean to become a global AI hub? Well, you need a few key ingredients. First, you need to be doing great science, both in the fundamental AI space as well as the applied AI space. Mm. So we have great institutions like TMU, Vector Institute, University of Toronto, and a lot of great science and research happening in uh, a variety of fields related to artificial intelligence. And then um, you also need a very strong um, 
community, like uh, uh, industrial community, to take those innovations and actually make them into products and things that we can use in society. Yeah. And that's what's happening in Toronto now. It's lots of great startups, especially in the medical space. Um, Ten years ago, when I finished my, my graduate studies, there was hardly any companies doing R&D, particular in the healthcare space within Ontario, let alone Canada. And now grad students are being hired left, right, and center. The, um, so there's a lot of opportunities for them now. So you kind of have that pipeline from great science, innovation, all the way to translation, which is actually making something that people will use. Well, uh, and I want I want to talk about specifically how AI can be used in the medical field and what we're doing in Toronto that is cutting edge and leading the way. But before I do, I want to talk about this innovation, uh, sort of this innovation aspect of it all, because I think um, uh, it would surprise people that uh, that, um, that that Toronto might be as innovative as that in the in the in the medical community, given the fact that we as a our our, our Canadian healthcare system is good at a lot of things. But if there's one knock on it as it as it compares to, say, the American system is that America is where innovation happens. Right. If it's a new drug, yeah. if it's a new technology, you're going to see it there first. And then it's going to come to Canada years later because of, you know, uh, if, when you when you take care of more people, one of the trade offs is you might lose out a little bit on innovation. But you're saying that in the A.I. space, we are as innovative as they get. I, I definitely agree with that. Everything you just said as well is that, you know, uh, translating me medical. Well, so my research is in medical imaging AI. And so medical imaging includes like radiology and pathology imaging, which are uh, one of the primary tools used for diagnosis and treatment planning. So in that space, um, there's a lot of promise and potential and the tools are doing a great job. We're segmenting, detecting things that uh, accuracy we haven't done before. But now once you have these great tools, how do you actually bring it to the hospital? Mm -hmm. in, uh, in the Canadian healthcare system, that's not super straightforward. Right. You usually have to have a collaborator there and it's more like uh, a single project. It's, there's, it's, uh, not as easy, I would say, as, as the U.S. system. U.S. system is obviously profit-driven, and so there's big incentives for them to integrate uh, AI because it makes everybody more efficient. So they're willing to spend uh, the money up front to make those investments. Like, I know that there's pathology labs in the U.S. that are like uh, reference labs. Yep. So everybody sends their, la uh, their slides there. They they use the tools. They use the tools, and it's uh, usually because the the actual algorithms that have been cleared. Um, there's only a handful, so they use it as for research use only. But they use it to make their staff more efficient and accurate. So, you know, I think in Canada we have those barriers and those hurdles. Yeah. Um, but when you're doing really great work in science and in the GTA in particular, there's a really a lot of tension from the hospitals to try and make this a reality. So now you have multiple stakeholders involved. You did, it was before maybe the engineers and computer scientists looking at 
artificial intelligence, but now the clinicians are invested. Now the institutions are invested. So we're kind of getting to a point where there's a, a, a recipe for success here. And, you know, we're getting pretty close to integrating some of these tools. It's very, very exciting. And I, I love what you just said about all the stakeholders being involved, because for something like this to become successful, for, for an entire city to be able to call itself an AI hub and the tip of the sword and um, leading the way, you have to have so many different diverging um, uh, stakeholders rowing in the same direction. So as you said, you have to have the startups, you have to have the financiers, you have to have different levels of government all buying in. You yes. have to have private public partnerships. You have to have the hospitals, the clinicians, uh, the R&D happening in universities in partnership with uh, private industry. All of that stuff has to come together. And it's rare in Canada to be able to say that that all happens at the same time. Are we experiencing a perfect storm right now that, that is going to lead to a boom in, uh, in AI for, for the medical field here in Toronto? I honestly believe so. I think we're well on our way. And um, again, like, like the state of where AI is in terms of like the science and the applied uh, aspect of it is that the tools are getting more and more accurate. And we actually can start integrating some of these tools to like augment workflows, like, you know, measure things. Um, so I definitely think we're getting there. Like it's, uh, we're still kind of on that incline of the innovation path. But well, we're not, we're like not at that. We're not at the tipping point yet, but we're, we're getting there. We're not at the peak. But April, exactly. I'm, we're going to have to leave it there, but I'm so glad we're leaving it on a high note. And what a great Great story to follow. Yeah, here's hoping that we get there as a city uh, because we've got uh, we've got the means and the desire, and uh, and we can help a lot of people. So thank you very much for spending time with us this morning. No worries. Thank you for your time. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. Six forty Toronto. We're talking with Tasha Carradine, political analyst. Uh, she's joining us with her new column in the National Post about conservatives losing the youth vote, and so she's joining us now. Good morning, Tasha Carradine. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Well, I'm good. So, yeah. So on one hand, you've got the uh, the Tories taking a very clear, unequivocal position. They stand with Israel. They stand with the Jewish people. On the other side, you've got the government that's taking a more of a uh, they're equivocating. Let's call it that. But the net result, it looks, according to certain information at your disposal, like the youth vote that was swinging towards the conservatives is now swinging back towards the liberals. Yeah, there was an amicus poll that was uh, taken um, in late November, and that one shook a lot of people because it found that 36% of voters aged 18 to 29 would vote conservative compared to 24 who would vote liberal. So that was like, wow, you know, the, the sort of the peak of, of the conservatives peaking among youth. And then all of a sudden this month, um, I said the bloom is off the rose. Well, the, the poll basically reversed itself, 24%. Of those 18 to 29 year olds would now vote conservative compared to 32 who would vote liberal. So what happened? Um, you know, I I was talking to a friend of mine who uh, is Muslim and she was saying that she, her theory and she said this is I, I feel and she hears it from her kids and her kids friends that they're having a conflict. They were very much supportive of the anti-inflation measures the conservatives had. Pierre Polyev's, uh, you know, really tough talk on the economy and housing. But they are also social justice warriors in many other parts of their lives. And I use that term in a sort of loose way, but, you know, they, they want to see what they think is justice. And they, are, they believe, from what the information they have, that what's happening in Israel and in Gaza in particular is not justice. 
it is overreach, it is wrong, it is colonialism, all this stuff. And so now they're saying, no, we can't stand with you. So there's a cognitive dissonance happening around this issue. And I think it's based on a lot of disinformation as well, but we can get into that too. Well, yeah, let, let's get into that. I mean, a lot of these, these kids are, are learning from, um, a lot of these, these the young people, I shouldn't call them kids, are learning, uh, getting a lot of their information from TikTok, which is, yeah. as, as I mean, it's as reliable as the person you're getting it from, which is, is, isn't saying a lot. And, and you also have this, uh, you know, when, when an entire generation has been fed the idea that, the, that every, every aspect of human history must be, must be looked at through the lens of oppressor versus victim, it, it leads to um, being able to buy this, this farce that uh, Israel is a colonialist state and the victims of that colonialist state are the Palestinian people. Right. Well, there's a colonial lens that's being applied to everything. And you're right. It's it's the history is being lost in it because it's it looks at the immediate and says, oh, you are you are uh, in a position of power. Therefore, must, you must be an oppressor. You are not. You must be an oppressed. And, um, you know, it's, it's young people don't know about the Holocaust. They don't recall how Jews were oppressed for millennia and how this culminated into the murder of 6 million people. Uh, they don't know about that. A, 20, a survey that was done in 2020 found two thirds of Americans aged 18 to 39, two thirds did not know 6 million people died. One in 10 believed that Jews were to blame for the Holocaust. So the amount of disinformation or lack of information is huge. And you're right on the TikTok piece, just as an example, Osama bin Laden's famous letter to America that he wrote after the, um, the attacks of, of 9-11 in 2001, he wrote this, this letter blaming the Jews for a lot of this. And it circulated widely on TikTok just recently with young people saying, this has opened my eyes. You have to read this. I mean, it's, it's horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that was an accident. You know, those are campaigns. They're orchestrated, too. Um, there's a lot of people who could benefit from this disinformation. And unfortunately, they are. So, Tasha Carradine uh, from the National Post, thank you so much for being here. Let's let's keep talking about this. What what does a party like the Conservatives do? Th- there's no doubt in my mind. I've listened to Melissa Lantzman. I've listened to Pierre Polyev. I've listened to a number of their MPs speak on this issue. They're not going to change their minds on this. Uh, slipping poll yeah. numbers will not change the Tories' position. I believe that they have take, taken a principled position. This is what they believe. And and they're willing to, I believe, fight for this position. So what do they do between now and the next election to ensure that this doesn't become something that scuttles their chances of forming a majority government? Well, I think that they have to. It's a larger project, like I say, than one election. It's a it's a kind of societal project. Uh, everything from Holocaust education to cultural touchstones that we've lost that have not been created because a lot of people who were familiar with with history have passed away. Um, and so that is that is on a lot of different organizations and individuals to do. But in the party itself, or in, I, I believe, I believe they've taken a principal position. I think that articulating that position and articulating the why of it. Um, you know, Pierre has made many videos of many things. Um, make a video about this. Yeah. This video that shows, you know, I don't say the graphic stuff that many journalists have seen, but at least close to explaining the, the, the morality of the position and the wider lens, right, that this colonial, anti-colonial piece is actually not true, for one thing. And second, it's being used to undermine not just the conflict in Israel, um, but also undermine Western society at large. Um, there's a lot of other narratives, you know, that, that, that are being used by other people 
um, other states, nation states even, that have an interest in us doubting ourselves as a country and being harder on ourselves in many ways than we need to be. Um, yes, we need to definitely make atonement for a lot of the things that happened to Indigenous people in Canada, for example. There are things that are happening today, boil water advisories that shouldn't be, like, we need to make so much progress on these issues. But constantly denigrating our history and saying that we are a terrible country is, it undermines the morale of an entire nation. And it's wrong, too, because people come here, immigrants come here because they love our country and they think it stands for peace and freedom, all these good things. And it does. So. Oh, no. Yes. No, there's no, nobody is going to tell. There's a lot that we have to apologize for. Uh, but that does not erase the fact that Canada is a net benefit in the world. It would be right. the, the, the world would be far worse off. And even even Canada today, with the, uh, even more problems that it's had in a very long time, is still one of the best and greatest countries in the history of the world. And, and there is nothing wrong with saying that, that, that there's a reason people move here and not to other countries is because we have a better country. We have better values. And some of those values are to let people have their own values that they bring here. Um, but that's another discussion for another day. Um, Tasha, what, what are the chances that this is a moment in time for the conservatives that will pass? I mean, a year from now, it's a long time before the next election, assuming that the NDP and the liberals um, are able to to keep their um, agreement going. But it could be as 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 I mean, as much as more than a year, a few like uh, mm-hmm. 16 months before the next election. That's a long time. A lot of a lot of experts are saying that the war in 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 Israel will not last that long. Is this going to well, be I on the radar? <laughs> well, is this going to be on the radar of, of, of these young voters a year from now? Um, it may not be, yeah. and this, but this is the thing because it's a minority government. Minority governments can fall at any time, um, and can also be taken down. And so, if the liberals feel they are in a power position at any point, they can pull the trigger on an election. They don't have to wait for that year to come up. It's that's the ultimate deadline. Uh, so, I think that no, I think that um, a year is a long time. It is hard to maintain momentum on any issue. I think inflation is the big one that will continue, sadly, to haunt everyone's life uh, and the cost of living until the election does happen. And that is the strongest suit for the conservatives. So hopefully and hopefully this conflict will be, um, you know, will come to an end that makes sense. And I say that in the sense of, you know, uh, eliminating the threat that is Hamas and moving forward in a way that offers a peaceful life for all people involved, uh, except Hamas, on whom I do not wish peace at all, because honestly, that yeah. <laughs> they, are, they are the instigators of the whole thing. So, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think in a year necessarily this will be an issue. Um, but, uh, you know, tides can turn, and you've got to always be on your guard. No, you, listen, you, you, you're, you're absolutely time. right, Tasha. I, the last election was called early. We were told it was the most consequential election of our lifetime. By the prime minister during a pandemic, we ran an election campaign because it was going to be so consequential. And upon winning, I don't believe the House sat for weeks. That's how important it was. So uh, I believe these decisions can be made very cynically. They could be made uh, entirely for self-interest. And if the prime minister and his government feel that they have their best shot at winning, he could very well pull the plug on this uh, on this um, on this government. You're you're absolutely right, uh, which is. Like I said, a very, very cynical play, but it is what it is. It is. Cynicism and politics are, you know, they're, they're, they're bedfellows at all times. So you have to always, always pay attention. And I think, you know, look, other polls have, have there's another one out today saying he, Pierre Polyev would get a crushing majority. So this one, this poll might have been an outlier, but again, um, from what you see in terms of youth, and it's not just in Canada, and it's not just this, this one poll, statistically, their views on the issue 
of Israel, of Hamas, of the Palestinian question, th- those those views are not what they used to be in the days when we were in university. Uh, we were the kids. So it's something really to everyone to think about and um, how we how we counter misinformation and make sure people are operating on a, on a, a place from a place of knowledge as opposed to a place of propaganda. Tasha Carradine of The National Post, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks very much, Ben. Have a good day. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. And there's no better person to talk, especially at this time of year, at the end of the year, than with Sylvain Charlebois. Um, and he's got uh, uh, he's got a whole list of stories about tw- where we're going for food in 2024. Doctor, how are you this morning? Hey, good, Ben. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So you uh, wrote in the uh, Toronto Sun that um, 2024 for food is and health is going to be price wars and more and a lot about dining in. Let's talk about what you think are the trends and things to look forward to in 2024. Yeah. So essentially for uh, every year, we actually survey 5000 Canadians asking them what they what they intend to do with grocery shopping for the next year. And also, we're, we ask them whether or not they're going to be making any food-related New Year's resolutions. And so, obviously, Ben, I, I think you know that 2023 was a really challenging year for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. In fact, for two quarters, uh, we saw uh, the average Canadian household spend less on food uh, despite inflation, uh, that's due to shelter costs. So it was really, I think households were under tremendous pressure financially last year or in 2023. For, uh, for the new year, a lot of people are planning to focus on health because I think in 2023, a lot of people just focused on bargains yeah. and just buying calories. Now they're going to be looking at quality products and see what they can buy uh, that would be nutritious without making any nutritional compromises along the way. So health is clearly a big topic for 2024. But isn't isn't health buying healthy? Isn't that code for having to spend more money? A lot a lot of people at least believe that if you want to eat healthier, it's going to cost you more money. Is that are, are people prepared to make that bargain? Well, it depends if you have time to cook. Uh, no compromises are that's necessary. A ve- that's a very good point. Yeah. That's a very yeah, good point. Absolutely. So you- uh, the other thing that people need to know is that I think that in 2024, uh, groceries, uh, grocery stores will be friendlier to people on a tight budget. We are expecting price wars in 2024, probably not in the winter, but in the summer, uh, when grocers will want you and I to be more loyal towards them because right now we're just nomads we're just shopping around for bargains and grocers know that so they want us back they want our business and they'll have to be generous with loss leaders rebates discounts uh more generous programs as well so you're saying the customer in is going to be in the driver's seat uh six months from now approximately yeah i would say so and already you're seeing some products being cheaper, especially at the center of the store, like simple green greens, like flour, coffee. I mean, those products are actually cheaper now than just a few months ago. So you can feel that the market is uh, tightened up right now. I'm talking to Sylvain Charlebois. He's giving us his predictions on what we can expect on the food front in 2024. And it seems to me, uh, Sylvain, that you are, uh, it sounds in your voice like you're a little optimistic for 2024. 
I, I am. I am. Well, I mean, in light of in light of what happened this year, I think we have to be we have to be optimistic. And and frankly, I mean, I know a lot of people uh, are aware that food prices are much higher than last year. But the biggest problem that uh, households uh, face in 2023 uh, were shelter costs. Whether you were renting or you actually own a home, uh, it's been tough. You had to basically dedicate more money to make sure you kept a roof over your head. Yeah. And and the other thing about mortgages is that let's say that you haven't paid your house and your interest rate has gone up. Well, you're chances are you're going to actually be looking at a much higher uh, tax bill from municipality uh, over the next 12 months. So that's another thing that will actually impact most house owners, and that's at least 50% of the game population. So, so 2024 financially will be, again, another difficult year for homeowners uh, and uh, people who rent. But again, I actually think that people are accepting their faith at the grocery store and will start looking uh, for more affordable options in their neighborhood and manage their budget accordingly. Um, Sylvain, lastly, before we go to break, and we only have a few short seconds left, but what is the likelihood that we as Canadians are going to see the, a grocery code of conduct come into effect in 2024? I think it's actually 100%. The big question is whether or not it's going to be mandatory. It needs to be banned for it for the code of conduct to work and making sure that Loblaws and Walmart comply, it needs to be mandatory. And right now, we're not sure. Ah. Well, listen, thank you so much for all of your insights. We really appreciate it. We hope to get to talk to you real soon. Have a great day. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, Sean Davidson from the Greater Toronto Airport Authority. Sean, Toronto Pearson Airport is expecting a massive number of travelers over the next few days gearing up for the holidays, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, it definitely is, Ben. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Yeah, 150,000 passengers per day. Uh, only ramping up a little bit more than that through the rest of the week. So to put that into perspective, that's like the entire city of Barrie coming through our doors every single day this week. I mean, so is the, it, so we've heard stories about, uh, you know, delays and problems at Pearson over the past couple of years. Some of it due to problems at Pearson, uh, due, to, uh, due to external factors. Can the airport handle this kind of traffic? We are definitely ready. I mean, last Christmas was definitely frustrating for travelers. It was it was a combination of a number number of things. Just before Christmas, there was the big storm out west, which caused a ripple delay of of flight cancellations. And then, of course, there was the extreme cold weather in Ontario, which caused uh, a baggage system malfunction. But we've really spent the last year building up the resilience of the resiliency of the airport to be ready to go for this year. We put a number of places uh, measures in place over the last year and and we're really ready to go. We're staffed up and uh, I was at the airport in the terminal all day yesterday morning and it was a day of 150,000 passengers and and people were coming up saying when is the rush starting and and it was already there. Yeah, I remember last year traveling there were the lines to get through security were serpentine through the airport. And that was the most frustrating thing because, you know, they say, you know, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. I think a, a line through security is only as fast as its slowest passenger. And, and so yeah. what, what do you recommend? There've got to be some recommendations that you can send our way to, to potential travelers to let them know, here's how you can keep the line moving. 
Here's what you can yeah, do on your sure. end to be prepared so that you're not the person holding everybody else back. <laughs> well, for sure. And I mean, we've worked with all the partners across the last year to make sure that the staffing is there for the, the busy holiday season, and it is. But there are a lot of things that passengers can do before they even get to the airport to make their experience a lot smoother. So, for example, we've implemented digital tools like YYZ Express. So this is something where you, before you even get to the airport, you can go and actually book a security spot uh, oh, yeah. reservation. So I, hear that, airport, I hear that's fantastic. I hear that works well, really well. Yeah, Ben, I went on a trip last week and I used YYZ Express. You get to the airport and essentially you booked a 15-minute window. And of course, there's a bit of leeway there. And you get there and you go into a different line than everybody else. Yeah. So you're, you're essentially skipping the security line. And that's helpful, uh, if especially if you're traveling with the family, right? Like if, you're, if you've got a whole bunch of people, it's really helpful to just know that you can all go in together. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then we also have things like mobile passport control. So if you're heading to the U.S., you can fill out your customs information uh, before you get into the customs line. And there's also a special line for people who have done that in advance. Uh, we've added a, uh, something like a wait time dashboard, which shows you on our website live wait times. So if you're in a taxi or a cab and you're heading to the airport uh, and you want to see exactly what to expect when you get there, uh, our wait times are there. So we just put these measures in place to help over to, to give the control back to the passenger yeah. because we understand that last year was frustrating, but we've, we've put a number of measures in place, digital tools in place to build up the resiliency and make sure that uh, when, when these, when people and passengers are coming to the airport this, this season, this holiday season, that it's a lot smoother. I'm talking to Sean Davidson from the greater Toronto airport authority. We're talking about Toronto Pearson airport, the massive amount of people coming in and out of there and the changes that have been made this year to make sure that this year looks and feels nothing like last year. It does genuine if I, for, for somebody who does not travel nearly as much as I used to, I have to say, recently, going through Pearson Airport, it has felt far more of a pleasure to travel, to go through the different steps and checkpoints, uh, be it uh, you know, um, checking my bags, going through security, going through customs. Every one of them really seems to have improved, especially if you do what you've just suggested, Sean, and take advantage of the new technologies that are available to help get you through the airport faster. Yeah, and I appreciate I appreciate you saying that. And it's taken a lot of work and a lot of collaboration between not only the Greater Toronto Airports Authority, but all the partners and airline agencies that we worked with. We've we've really learned from the lessons of last year, and we we want to make things as smooth as possible because nobody wants to show up to the airport and uh, be dealing with a long security line or uh, be waiting for a flight delay. So we put as many measures as possible to make as possible to make sure that doesn't happen. At the end of the day, though, we live in Canada, and at some point uh, over the next few months, we're going to be dealt with a winter storm, and uh, nobody can control the weather. But again, we believe that we can control our response to it, and that's why we put these measures in place. And, and just things like w when a weather storm and a, a bad weather system is approaching, uh, if you were going to drive on the 401 in the morning, you'd give yourself a little bit of extra time, and that's just what we're reminding people as well. Sean, where are most people traveling? Are they traveling within Canada or are they going to warmer climes? Oh, we have a, we have a, a ton of passengers who are heading uh, uh, to warmer climates. But, but of course, people use Toronto Pearson to, uh, to access the world. Uh, it's, it's the gateway to Canada and it's the gateway out of Canada. So uh, we have passengers uh, flying everywhere in the world. Now, I also heard that there was a, my brother told me last night, I love having mm. my family over because I learn all sorts of <laughs> useful information. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're traveling down to the U.S. They're saying there's a new uh, cutoff for uh, baggage for people going to the, the United States. Uh, so what we are asking 
passengers if you're flying internationally to show up at the airport three hours before your flight and if you're, if you're flying domestically two hours before your flight and if you are uh, coming those times before uh, you'll have no problems uh, getting through. Now when you say that like there, but there's a distinction yeah. between people who are traveling uh, who are checking in beforehand they're traveling yeah. with um, without checked bags and they're and, they, yeah. they, and they've done all the, the things they need to they don't have to show up three hours early do they? Well, the thing is, the thing is that the airport can get busy. So, I mean, I've I've showed up at the airport. For example, when I flew last week, I showed up at the airport three hours before my flight, and I spent I, I spent time waiting at the gate having a coffee. But you just the thing is, it's it's a busy time of year to travel, and if you get to the airport, and especially if it's there's been a weather system that comes through, or there's something that we're dealing with in the morning. Again, there's yeah. a, like I said, there's 160,000 people coming through the door every single day. Um, not every day goes perfectly. Uh, so that's why we put in that buffer time of three hours, uh, but we do everything we can to make sure that that, that three hours isn't actually needed. Well, Sean, we're going to leave it there, but we wish you the very, very best to you and everybody at the airport, because honestly, that is the beginning and the, that's the beginning of someone's vacation and that's the end of it. So they want to start on a good note and they want to come home happy. Yeah, so here's, exactly. hope, here's hoping that you and everybody at Pearson can, uh, can live up to that standard. I know you've been working very hard to do exactly that. So we wish you the very best of luck and a happy holiday season. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben. Happy holidays.